Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Shelley O'Donovan. She's from the Authentic Influence Group, and she teaches persuasion, influence, and body language. Shelley, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 to 90 seconds on your background and history, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career in politics and the whole time was really interested in how people are influenced around policy issues. I was a lobbyist for a number of years, then went to pharma and um, influenced on behalf of my company. So finding out how to influence so that we could get policy changes done. And in all of these places, I just became so obsessed with how we influence people, what makes people tick. And so I shifted my career, opened my own business. And I really empower people through training to learn body language secrets, to learn to communicate effectively, and to just take their um, work to the next level. Okay. I've been fascinated by body language for nearly 40 years, but there is so much hokum around it. What's actually reliable and how much effort and training has to go in to use it as a, an accurate predictive tool of intent and truth? So the biggest thing is that you have to spend a lot of time learning it. And so I, you know, I see loads of people out there teaching it and just have a baseline understanding, but it takes a lot of work to really know that the things that you're seeing are happening. And even then you always need to question, you know, is that angry expression from Marcus? Does that mean that he didn't like something I said? Or is it that somebody walked in behind the screen and that he didn't like? So you always have to question what you see and try to be a little bit of a Pollyanna about it. Always come with positive intent. Interesting. Okay. And are there cultural nuances? And differences because, you know, is is there a one size fits all? Yeah. So there are some cultural differences for sure. And the other thing is there's also just personal differences. So normally when I really want to dig into somebody's body language, I'll try to baseline them first. So I'll try to find out exactly what's their typical thing. So I'll ask them some questions that makes them a little nervous um, so that I can see what they do when they're a little bit nervous. And then we see if there's like changes in body language. Cause you could do something in your baseline that normally is a line cue, but it's just a baseline cue for you. That's kind of like red rag to a bull. Uh, (laughs) Would you mind taking me through those questions to baseline? Yeah. So the first question I would ask you, Marcus, is what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a full English made up of bacon with the fat removed, which is always disappointing. Tomatoes, mushrooms, egg, and toast. Okay, interesting. And I'm going to ask you, where did you go on vacation last time? Maybe this was, you know, pre-COVID even. The last one I can remember was going to Sorrento in Italy and Malta. Okay, great. And I'm going to ask you, Marcus, to tell me two things. I want one of them to be truthful, and I I want you to lie to me on the other one. Oh, about anything. About anything. And don't tell me which one's a lie, obviously. Okay. I'm on a diet and I love learning things that are new and different, but connected to what I already know. Okay. So my guess is that the first one isn't true. (laughs) Well, I I suspect giving away that I had a fry up for breakfast. Probably uh, the clue there, but I wasn't thinking on my feet. (laughs) That's that's all good. But you also were doing a little bit of some different movements. So you were looking up, you were blinking a little bit more. You were, you know, trying to come up. And the the second one, I could tell you were also thinking. So you were really thinking about what you were going to say. So that is a way to kind of quickly baseline somebody, but you may do it in another way too. Like, let's say we just had a meeting and in the beginning of the meeting, we're talking about something kind of benign. So you might watch my body language language movements and see what I typically do when I talk. But then, you know, later in the meeting, it gets contentious and you might see me do things that are really different. Now, now this could be that I'm just angry and that's why my cues have changed. 
But it also could be if there's a cluster of clues. So there's a lot of cues at once. That might be a place where you pick up, okay, maybe like maybe she's lying about this. Like maybe whatever it is, but maybe there's something there. And then you want to always continue to ask questions and try to dig in a little bit. So you have to be careful though, because when you ask those questions, depending on your personality, Marcus, I'm guessing you could get away with this more, but some of us want to be a little more gentle with asking those questions um, so that you don't kind of, you know, make someone uncomfortable. But I I have been compared with a Sherman tank, uh, sorry, a a panzer tank going through a Belgian village in 1949. (laughs) So don't don't, uh, move just because there's a house in the way. Okay, so let me ask you this then. So in the context where someone might be nervous because of the situation, like a job interview, how do you baseline in such a way that actually filters that nervousness out, that contextual nervousness? Yeah, so the one reason that I asked you what you had for breakfast is that that's a question that actually makes people just a tiny bit nervous. And we suspect it's because they have to really think about what they had for breakfast. It's not something that someone normally asks you. And so I was picking up a couple cues, like a just very mild nervous cues. And so that's a way to baseline it. Now, in an interview, you're definitely going to see some nerves. My wife might listen to this interview and she'll give me... <laughs> I know. Well, yes. That's the uh, the tough thing is once you once you know right then you can pick this up especially with a particular person so it's one thing when you walk into a meeting and it's someone brand new but when it's somebody you really know my family can't really lie to me at this stage so <laughs> fun for me not so much for them are you divorced no no <laughs> strange so they're all good. I've been fascinated by this subject because understanding human beings, I think, is one of the most vital skills that you can learn in life, but in business and leadership and management, uh, and particularly in sales, it's so key. But one area that I see it deeply lacking is a lack of self-awareness. So Let's start with that, because I think a lot of the audience are probably guilty of this. Love you lots. Nonetheless, a lot of you are really crap at this. So how can one become more self-aware of not only your own feelings and emotions, but also the impact that you might be projecting out on a third party? Yeah, absolutely. And that is really important. So early in my career, I worked with a lot of lobbyists and they're essentially salespeople in a, in a way, right? They're a little bit of a, a different beast, but they are selling policies, right? They're selling ideas to lawmakers. And so it's a really interesting um, interpersonal dynamic. And they would often not be aware of their body language that they were producing and putting forward. And so the first thing I would tell you that is if you're in a meeting with somebody, especially in this world where we're all on Zoom, to record it and go back and watch what you do. So the first time I did this, I actually, it was, you know, pre-Zoom really. And I got on the phone with someone when I was first learning body language. And I just hit record on my computer to see what I did. And two seconds in, I got up and started walking and pacing on the call. And as you can imagine, somebody can hear that in your voice. Yeah, they're hearing your breathing, the the timbre, the tempo. Absolutely. Or if you're, you know, if if you're in a meeting and you're looking at something else on a screen, they can see that. They can even hear that in your voice if you're not, if they don't see you, they can still hear that you're not paying attention. So it becomes really important to just be engaged and to listen to people, to really sit and hear what they're saying and to pick up those body language cues as well. So, you know, if you asked me a question, Marcus, and you're looking for me to say, yes, I want to buy your product but you see me shake my head no while I'm saying that, then that's a mismatch in consistency. And that's a really good sign that there's something there that I'm still not ready to purchase from you. When I went on my microexpressions course, one of the things that I learned was that you look for three points of interest within seven seconds of the meaning of a piece of communication becoming clear. And a point of interest is really a leakage of the truth rather than a lie. And I think this is a a really important distinction because people tend to look for 
clues that someone is lying. But what's very interesting, certainly for me, is that people leak the truth, not the lie. So also the fact that you have to look for clusters and individual units of uh, the truth coming out is not sufficient for uh, deeper discovery. So can you give some indication of things that might be points of interest that one can look for? Yeah, absolutely. And you're you're right on the mark there with it leaking out the truth. And sometimes we don't even know ourselves. Like we might have some, you know, hidden feeling about something and we and it leaks out. And then we realize if we see ourselves, we read body language, we realize, oh, maybe I'm not so interested in that thing. So some things you could look for, if you put your hand up to the top of your head, that's sometimes shame. And so if I was talking to you and you asked me a question about something, so I once went into interview with someone at a company. So I was looking to get a job there. And the interviewer, I started to ask her about her old company. And just because I had been there recently and she put her hand up to her head and started telling me about the company. So there's something shameful there. I obviously didn't care about that. It was, was not something that was interesting me. But now she's linked that shame feeling to this interview she's having with me, which is a problem because now there's this feeling that's attached to this interview that she's having with me. So you want to be careful about those kind of things too. Some other cues that you might see, there's this thing right here. uh, It's kind of under your Adam's apple. It's called the super sternal notch. And so when we rub that, we're nervous. So if a woman might play with her dress or her, her shirt, if she has a necklace on, she might start playing with that necklace. And that's really to get at that super sternal notch because it gives us a hit of oxytocin which is this um, hormone that makes us calm down. We feel a little better. Men will adjust their tie. Like, because I have a political background, I love to watch hearings in Washington and watch the body language and kind of review what happens. And I've caught people lying a lot in those hearings, as you can imagine. Really? I'm so surprised. I thought it was a uh, haven for the truth. Yeah, exactly. But they start to adjust their tie, right? It gets like, oh, like the tie, the shirt. And that's really getting at that. So when you start to see those kind of cues, that could mean that someone's nervous. Blocking is another one, like blocking the arms. Or sometimes we use something to block with, like a piece of paper or a laptop. We put it up in front of us. And that's really this cue that like, I'm uncomfortable. I might be uncomfortable with something you're asking me. And when you start to see these all clustered clustered together, then it's really a time to think about, is there something that's being said? Is there some kind of, you know, is there something between you and the other person that's there? But it can also be, it can also be something else going on right in the background, right? Maybe I got some news before I came into this interview and I'm still kind of ruminating on that. So some things are coming up. Interesting. Okay. So can someone be relatively adept at deception by understanding how to configure those clusters of behavior to convey an indication of a a truth they want you to believe rather than the actual truth? Yes, but rarely. So it's not easy. I'm very well trained at this stage in body language. And if you asked me something that I really did not want to tell you and I was going to lie about, I still would slip out some cues. So it is incredibly rare that you can control that to that extent. And even even you might have some cues that don't leak out. Like we're in an interview right now, right? On Zoom. So you're seeing kind of the top of me. So it might be that you ask me something and I'm fidgeting somewhere else and you don't even see that, but that's still happening. And even I have clients that come to me for public speaking or things like that. And I tell them like, if you really need to get those wiggles out, like just tap your foot, but make sure nobody can see it or wiggle your toe or do something to get that nervous energy out so that you're presenting yourself on the screen as confident. And I think it's also really important to double check context. So for example, if someone is appearing nervous and edgy. It may just be that they're running out of time on the parking meter. So you you have to double check. So 
again, it's important, I think, to triangulate answers and ask similar questions to try and come at the same response in a different from a different perspective. Does that uh, make sense as well? It does, absolutely. And context is really important. So even I've had some clients come to me, this was kind of pre-COVID. So they're going in to do interviews for media, right? And back in the day, what used to happen is they would call you to do an interview. They give you a place to go downtown near your house. And you basically get put into like what is essentially a closet and you have to give this interview and they, you know, simulcast it from with the background of, you know, Philadelphia in the background, but you're really in like a closet. And I've clients that just don't come across great because they're sitting in a closet and maybe they're a little bit claustrophobic. And so they have these nervous cues and it has nothing to do with the content that they're putting out, but it has to do with the fact that they're sitting in this closet giving this interview and it's a little uncomfortable and maybe they rush to get there. So you always have to double check and just be really willing to ask additional questions and to get to the heart of why someone might be putting off cues. And you often don't want to just call them right out on it. I saw an angry micro expression from you. Unless unless we had that kind of relationship, I wouldn't go, Marcus, why are you so angry about this? I might say, it seems like you're a little uncomfortable with X, Y, and Z. And why is that? If you feel it, say it and be obvious. Be obvious and be authentic, right? I always say come to it with from a place of your heart, right? You always want to come with positive intent as well. Okay. So building on that, what one of the areas that I was trained in was to look at people's interactional style. So looking at things like the flow of communication, the expressiveness, the Uh, exactness, ambiguity, trying to manage impressions. Now, again, that kind of thing to try and fake takes an awful lot of emotional energy. So in my experience, where people are trying to be something they're not, that then triggers all sorts of other clusters, because whilst they're trying to hide that, then other things will occur. So something will happen with their eyes, with their voice, their blood pressure might rise, and so you suddenly see a vein on their head or you know, the temples pulsing. So I'm really curious, again, in terms of the different areas. I mean, we, we've heard about body language. There's voice. Right. What are the other windows into people's communication? So the other thing is just, you know, how concise they're being. So we often get so caught up in kind of dumping information to people instead of really looking at... How do I get the right information over to Marcus in a way that he understands, in a way that's clear and consistent? Because communication is usually at least a two-way street. And so it's not only does Marcus understand what I'm saying, but it's also, am I putting out something that he can understand, that he can easily digest, and that your point doesn't get lost in there? Okay. So you spent a lot of time working with lobbyists. That must have given me quite an arsenal um, in terms of understanding humanity at its worst. Maybe I'm being unfair and judgmental, but I suspect I'm not. Again, in an environment as, how can one put this politely? You can't. Okay. In an environment where there is so much self-serving going on, that must trigger some really fascinating observations because no one is there for the good of their health. Right. Well, there are healthcare lobbyists. Yeah, but they're not there for... I remember um, seeing a talk, um, was it uh, JP Morgan ran it? Uh, Which is, is curing people a good business model? I'm not entirely sure that they were there for the good of their or anyone else's health. (laughs) I'm curious how that, you know, the environment can have an impact. Absolutely. So environment does have a big impact. And so we see this in certainly in government, right? In lobbying circles, there's lots of toxic stuff that happens and things that go on. And people actually use body language sometimes to intimidate, right? So, you know, whether they're staring you down 
whether they're, you know, using their space, right? Someone who's big, we see a difference between men and women because men typically just take up more space. So they're much more able to be a bigger space in the room than someone who might be a little bit smaller. I mean, I've seen men walk into conferences and kind of stretch out their arms across three and four chairs and put their legs up in what we call a cowboy cross, which is kind of, you know, showing the family jewels. And that's a very aggressive move. So at this stage, if I saw that, I would try to tone that person down, but most people won't do that because they, you know, they don't have the background to be able to do that. But those things really matter. And certainly in your work environment, when there's layoffs or things like that, that's when you start to really see people pull in their body language or to start to protect, you know, that protection when we pull in that can give a lot of information too about how someone's feeling. And even in the workplace, you see people that are dealing with things at home, but they bring it to work, right? And that pours out in their bodies usually. Okay, that's interesting. Can you define the difference between influence and persuasion? Yeah, so influence, at least from my perspective, influence is the ability to get things done, to influence how things are getting done and to find channels to move that along. Persuasion is similar, but persuasion is really um, persuading that person or trying to get them to come over to your point of view. So influence to me is a little bit more embedded in different areas where, again, persuasion is kind of a little more straightforward, but they're very much similar, similar animals. Okay, so the accusation must be leveled, people who do what you do, that it's manipulative. Now, I'm not averse to manipulation so long as the intent is right, but I'd love your take on this. Yeah, so here here is my take on it. If we all understood each other, if we all connected better, I think the world would be a better place. And so I always tell people to use these powers for good and not evil. Try to connect with people in a real way. And you will find that you become much more of who you are and you can release that into the world. There are definitely people who learn body language and some of these other skills to be incredibly manipulative. And I don't really condone that, but the world is what it is. So it's just important to come at it with a good heart, with positive intent. Okay, so let's take this slightly down the dark route. I'm fascinated also by the whole concept of uh, people hacking and social engineering. I've never really got to grips with how to do it, but I am fascinated to learn about it. And again, I suspect there's a fair amount of it going on in the lobbying world. Uh, And if they aren't, they're missing a massive trick. Um, I interviewed a wonderful woman called Jenny Radcliffe who is one of the top social engineers on the planet. And she's genuinely fascinating. But these are people who can cause others to behave and decide in a very specific way. And I'm interested in your take on the whole concept of social engineering. Yeah, that's interesting. So I I guess I think about it from an online perspective, and I think it's pretty... Um, it is pretty concerning when somebody, you know, even some of these big platforms, when they're kind of pinging you and they know that you searched on something that's a little bit, a little bit sensitive or something, and they're kind of pulling you back in. And so I think that it is a real problem. That said, I still think there's a lot of power in knowing body language cues, knowing what's out there, knowing what someone is, is putting out there in terms of their own language, their own um, social points. And, and just being really genuine, but also having an awareness that that stuff goes on that, you know, whether it's advertisers or others, that there is a possibility for manipulation. So you always have to be aware of that. So what, what are the clues and the cues that one should be aware of if one's may, maybe online? Yeah. So I would say if, you know, let's just say that um, you... I don't know, are searching for something around vacations, right? And you continue to search on vacations and then all of a sudden you're getting all these ads for travel to Europe or something. I mean, that right there, okay, maybe that's pretty benign, but if you turn that into something else, they may be giving you content that just leads you down a darker path. And so 
I don't know if you're searching for something, you know, you're, you're upset about something. And then all of a sudden you're getting some ads that are, you know, pointing you to, I don't know, horoscopes or something that's going to take you down a dark road. What's interesting is the data on this. Those type of adverts have a 0.035 click-through rate. They're massively ineffective because, frankly, most people who authorize them or commission them don't know what the hell they're doing, which is probably a good thing. That is a good (laughs) So let's dig a little bit deeper into uh, the whole idea of persuasion. I know that one of the questions people don't ask is how to build an effective argument in the right way to persuade someone else. Right. Uh, So can you give us some bones to put on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this actually goes back to like Aristotle and you can think about his persuasion piece. And so building in, so first building credibility, right? Building that ethos piece, building in some passion to your argument. So if I came in here and was arguing to you about why body language is important today, Marcus, but I had absolutely no tone in my voice. There was no excitement in, in my voice. You you might not believe me. So that becomes really important, having that passion piece. And then the final thing is cre- um, some kind of data, right? You want to have some kind of data to support it. So if you have a study, you can pull that forward. So if you have whatever that is, if your company has some kind of statistics or data to support your claim, that becomes really important to layer in there as well. So really having those pillars and being able to actively explain them. But again, not getting so involved and in depth in things that, that we lose you. And then certainly stories can bring that passion as well. So it, it's great if I have data to support why you should buy my product. But then if I have a story about someone that I worked with last week and how amazing they they were or the big transformation that they made through going through my training program, that's going to make a dig, big difference in persuading you as well. Okay, interesting. So if you look at the structure of a good sale, the intent is not to persuade per se, but it's to help the other person find their reason for wanting what you have. I've learned over the years that I cannot persuade anyone to do or buy anything. They have to discover why they want it for themselves. And often, salespeople bypass this simply by doing a word vomit of um, you know, lots of features and functionality and uh, showing why their data or why they think you should buy. But that isn't compelling at all. So can you help us develop some understanding of how to develop good questioning that enables someone to go from either not knowing or even being averse to buying something to a structure or a framework that will help them go through that process of self-discovery where they realize they want what you have? Yeah, absolutely. And so it could be starting with some questions about trying to get to the pain, right? And I know you know this piece. So trying to get to the pain that they're experiencing, maybe layering in some stats around that and some things that are really important there, but then asking them as well, right? Coming back to them. Do you see, you know, there's this big statistic about, like, for instance, I recently sold a pilot program. And when I made my sales calls, I asked them questions, but I also pointed to the statistic that we spend 23 hours a week on average in meetings and how that's a lot of time. And a lot of my clients find that they're wasting a lot of time in meetings. And so people were all too happy to tell me about the pain of being in too many meetings, Mm -hmm. especially in this new Zoom world. Then we talked through that and I was able to then layer in some facts about the training, what it looks like, and then leave that with them. And so having those facts, and certainly I was selling to people that were warm leads. So the credibility was there already, right? They knew who I was. But if if you're not, if you don't have that credibility established, then you may have to, you may have to layer that in. So you know, so for example, even in the lobbying space, if someone walks in from a pharmaceutical company, 
they have a certain level of credibility right there. Sometimes it's not great credibility. So it might be thinking about how I can warm that, um, that other person up. How can I show them that I'm human, right? That even though I work for big pharma, I do really care about patients that my, you know, my daughter just had, went through treatments and I, so I'm here to support drug discovery and those kind of things. So it's finding those common themes as well and really pulling them out. I've learned along the way that your credibility comes from the questions that you ask, not the information that you give. And it's important to demonstrate to the other person that you've heard, even if you disagree with them, you've heard them because that recognition is very important as well. So what tips and advice can you give to people who may struggle in a sales or management or leadership role to persuade others uh, in terms of how they comport themselves, the language they use, their tonality and the questioning so that the whole package comes across as being persuasive rather than just simply using tactics and technique. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on something really important there in the beginning was the listening piece. So often we are so focused on what we're going to say next that we're not actively listening to the person who's talking. And so we need to kind of throw out the idea that we need to be sitting there ready to jump in for that next point and really sit there and listen to what's being said. And so that's the first really big key because when people know, people know when you're really listening and people know when you're not, like when you're in your head trying to put that together. So that's one piece for sure. And then having that open body language, drawing people in a little bit, giving them the time as well. So we're in this rush, rush world and leaders just giving their folks the time to actually get through the points and not feel rushed about it. Those kind of things can really go a long way. And I know they don't seem like much on the surface, but it makes a huge difference in how somebody connects with you. And my observation on this is that you have to slow down if you want to speed things up. When someone else has finished talking, pause, and that gives you enough time to reflect on what they've said. Don't think about your next question whilst they are still speaking. Because if you do, you'll probably miss the golden nuggets. Regularly review what you've heard so that they feel understood. Because as social primates, that recognition, that acceptance is really important. And the other thing is, don't be afraid of entering into constructive conflict. And I think far too few people really understand the difference between conflict in general destructive conflict and constructive conflict and they lump it all together and so far too often they miss the opportunity to develop a really good solution with another person or a team because they are either not paying attention or they're brittle and they're afraid of criticism they're afraid of being challenged and what they're looking for is people who agree with them. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's where you end up in a bubble. So from that perspective, what would you advise people to do if they find themselves surrounded by people who do agree with them? Who do agree. That's interesting. So that's a really interesting point. I So one of the things I didn't mention earlier is that I teach at the Wharton School as well. And I teach persuasion and one of the things, and even pitching for entrepreneurs. And one of the things that we really make sure that we do is to give that constructive feedback because without that constructive feedback, you don't grow. And so we all can use some constructive feedback. There's nobody out there who's a perfect salesman. There's nobody out there who's a perfect lobbyist. Like there's, it's just, there's always tweaks that you can make. And so that's one of the, the first things. And I think when you surround yourself with kind of yes people, you don't grow because you, you need to get that feedback. Now, obviously you can work for somebody who's really challenging and tough and just beats on you every day from a, you know, 
a confidence perspective, and that's not great either, but someone, a manager, a leader who really takes the time to help you see those blind spots, to help you see what you are missing and to help you develop and kind of fix those things or just grow along that continuum is, is such a gift. Interesting. Let me ask you this, because one of the things that frustrates the living hell out of me is so often in sales, managers, route to management is they get called into the office and told, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're, not, you're now the, the idiot boss. And that's the sum total of their onboarding process. And now they're set to sink or swim. And I'm really curious, and particularly given the work that you do at Wharton, I'm really curious about um, that first 90 to 120 days in a new role that you're unfamiliar with, where you probably haven't been given the training. Um, What advice can you give to somebody who's just taking on that position and uh, to, to help them really understand the other human beings to whom they serve and will ha- be re- have them reporting to them. What tips and advice can you give to really get them to understand those people? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say, even if this is a team that you've worked with, right, on a peer level, and now you've been elevated, right? And I actually work with a lot of folks like this. They're not always salespeople, but they're in those roles and they've been elevated and they get there and they're like, uh-oh, like... I just don't quite have all the things I need. So the first thing I would say is to start by listening to people, right? Go and talk to those folks on your team. Really extend that olive branch and see what what they're feeling and, and what's happening there. That would be the first thing. The second thing, I work with a lot of folks who kind of happen into these management roles or they want those management roles and they don't quite have the kind of the body language. They don't have the presence and those kind of skills. And so those are tweaks that we can make, right? We can work on how you open up your body language or how you walk into a room or how you sit up and how you kind of take command of that, that meeting space and take command of that team. So that, that would be the second thing. So first listening. And then again, how are you relating to that team? And really coming at it from a team approach, you might be the leader of that team, but I think that some of the best managers are the ones that you feel are right in it with you and that they are, you know, they're right there with you and they're supporting you. Interesting. So let's take it to the next rung up, which is managing up. Right. Because I see managers as having five critical functions that should be on every job description. Hire the best people. Never compromise on recruitment. If you do, you've just bought yourself a management headache and you're going to have to fire them at some point or you're going to ruin the morale of the team. So hire the best people. Get the best out of them. And this means training, coaching, mentoring, holding accountable. It means letting people fail. And you don't let the business fail, but you let them fail. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Help them run interference between the idiots above you and the idiots below you to make sure that you're protecting your people from acts of idiocy, self-sabotage, and so on. And not only to create protection, but also help clear roadblocks and to manage inclusively. Now, in terms of helping them protect from senior management, What advice would you give to be able to persuade uh, leadership to let your people get on with their job? Because one thing that drives me mad is the amount of time people spend. You said there was 23 hours a month? 23 hours a week. Oh, my mistake. Sorry. So 23 hours a week stuck in meetings. Meetings. And most of that is actually unproductive. I, you know, most of that meeting time is unproductive meetings. And... Often in those meetings, the person running it, the manager or the leader, is on broadcast mode where they are learning nothing. Yes. So how can meetings be more productive? Yeah, so there's a lot of things with meetings. I could do a whole whole segment with you on meetings and how to make those. You'd be welcome back to do that. 
you know, the first thing I would say is if you don't need a meeting, don't have a meeting. And I know that feels like a really obvious piece of advice, but you'd be amazed. (laughs) You would be amazed at how many people say, oh, we have to fix this problem. We'll have a meeting and it doesn't fix the problem. So that's the first thing. Also having an agenda, like just these good tactics to pull people through really doing anything outside of a meeting that you you can. And so it's different maybe for a salesperson who's one-on-one and they're trying to build a rapport. That's a very strong reason to have a meeting, right? We need to build a rapport. I want to build this relationship with someone. That's different. But these bigger, broad meetings when the relationship's already established and you're just checking a box, you're wasting time, you're wasting money. And so it becomes really important to put all those things in place. And then also to have someone facilitating that meeting, leading people through that meeting, not letting people repeat the same thing that you know Marcus just said, I'm just going to repeat it again. That's a waste of time. One of the things that I like to ensure in meetings is that everybody has a voice. But again, how do you coax introverts who are often fabulous observers and often they have the brilliant ideas, but they're afraid to show them. How do you nurture and coax them to participate? Yeah. So I actually work with a lot of introverts in my work. And, you know, the first thing to do is to make sure that they know from their leader that I want to hear your voice. You have a lot of great things to say. I want to hear that. Introverts also are a little different than extroverts. So extroverts kind of talk, or I'm sorry, they kind of think outside by talking, right? So they talk through all their ideas outside. Whereas introverts take it all in, they usually synthesize it and they put it back out. So usually what you're getting back out from an introvert is something that's a little more polished than what the typical extrovert will be saying. And so you want to get to that information, but you want to give them a heads up. So I might say something like, John, I'm going to hear from you next, but Marcus, you're going to be after John. And I want you to give some feedback on whatever this is. That gives Marcus a chance to think about it. He's not caught off guard. He has a minute to take a few notes and you're going to put it back out. So that's one thing. Also, instead of asking you a very pointed question that might throw you off, I might ask you something like, Marcus, how do you feel about that? Because that's a very generic, general question, and it gets to the heart at how you're feeling about a project. And you can go a million directions with that question. So it's going to give you a little bit more um, confidence. But I also tell introverts, speak up within the first five minutes of a meeting. It doesn't have to be anything mind-blowing. Just use your voice within the first five minutes. It's going to make it much easier for you to jump back in again. That's very interesting. That's good advice. I like that. Okay. So in the context of conflict, how do you use influence and persuasion to lower the temperature so that you can get back into an adult-to-adult, grown-up conversation that's constructive? Yeah. And this really goes back to something we were talking about a few minutes. You had said that people want to feel heard. So if you say something that's pretty, that you know I'm really against, I might say, Marcus, I understand your point, right? I understand why you would feel that way. I can totally relate to that. But what I want to just point out to you is that that we're way under budget and we have to make sure that, you know, we bring these numbers in, whatever it is. But you're basically using a bridge. You're going to come, I'm going to make you feel like you're heard. Like I hear that you have issues with whatever I just said, but pull you back in to my point or my argument or whatever you kind of need to, need to hear to give you that chance to calm down. And that's one technique. It doesn't always work perfect, but it does really help to calm the room down. I often find words like bust and just, uh, just are quite dangerous, but effectively negates everything that preceded it and just negates everything that follows it. I'm just calling for a quick chat about And by the time you've diminished it, and I love you, but essentially is a way of saying I'm really going to pile in now. Yeah. (laughs) uh, How important are the specific language items that you use, the vocabulary you use? Yeah, it can be really specific. And even to the point of, so those absolutely 
taking butt out. The other thing that I often tell folks is these qualifiers, like even sending an email. If I said, I think, I feel, I taking that out and just giving the statement itself because it weakens, it weakens it a little bit. Now there may be times you really do need to weaken it, but in most communication, you're going to try to pull those things out. And even in the context of a company itself, right? You want to talk the language that's spoken within that company. So all of these big companies kind of have their own lingo and you want to make sure that you're really speaking in the lingo that's being communicated, but that you're also being clear. So we get we get so caught up in making everything look and sound fantastic and kind of, you know, advanced or professional that we we take out the basic and the simple. And sometimes it just needs to be communicated in a simple way. I've certainly seen that. One of my pals, Justin Michael, produces really ugly short emails with remarkable positive impact. And um, you know, I saw a, an exercise he did where he made 130 dials, got 88 effectors and booked 33 meetings in one morning. And the power of email is huge. However, and this is a big however, a big but, it's certainly been my downfall on many occasions because the intent and the tone that an email is written in is not necessarily the one it's read in. So what advice would you give to someone who's trying to make an important point, uh, maybe in a sale, it may be dealing with a difficult internal issue around the use of email and the behavior that they need to bring to their emailing activity? Yeah, I mean, the first piece of advice I have is to realize that that person is not necessarily getting that email when you deliver it. So. I always think, think about if this person gets that email at 3 a.m. in the morning when they have a pounding headache, right? How would you write that so that they're not set off right away? So that's the first thing, right? That's the absolute first thing, right? Because you don't want anything taken out of context or out of tone. The second thing is to make it clear. And so people really shy away from white space in an email, but that is essential. Because if I send you, a, let's say we were talking about the podcast and I said, I want you to ask me these three questions. If I bullet those out and I really pull them apart, you're going to see them really quickly. But if I put them all in a paragraph, you're not going to catch them. So thinking about from a visual perspective, how do you make that clear? How do you make that something that someone can see quickly and digest quickly? Excellent. Shelley, this has been really fascinating. I would genuinely love to have you come back. Absolutely. So we've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this, what are the blind spots that you see people falling into or falling foul of when it comes to influence and persuasion? So I think the first blind spot is people don't think that they're influential at all. And so we are all influencing every day, even in your families, in your work, you are influencing. And so if you don't take control of that and start to put some parameters around it and really realize that you're doing that, that can be a problem. The other blind spot I think that people really have with influence is trying just directly to influence the person that they're influencing. So there's often someone in the background, whether it's your boss that you're trying to influence that has that person's ear And that if you can kind of influence them or warm them up a little bit, it's going to make things with that boss go so much smoother. So really looking about looking at those other channels that kind of surround that person. Very interesting. Okay, so you have a golden ticket. You can go back and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Shelley, age 23, (laughs) who knew everything was invincible and immortal. Yeah. Uh, What one choice bit of advice would you give her that you know she would probably ignore? So I think it's really just having the confidence, whether you really have it or not, just kind of showing that confidence because it makes a huge difference in your game. And I can tell you for sure that the 23-year-old version of me did not have that confidence yet. And so all of these tips and tricks just do a lot to kind of increase that confidence for people. And you you have to believe what you're selling. You have to have passion for what you do and all of those things. Sometimes you get a little misguided when you're in your early days. 
And in all honesty, that really doesn't matter because unless you're on patrol in the Hellman province, chances are it's not going to be fatal. You can screw up and pretty much recover from almost anything. So don't be afraid to fail. Okay, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to in this area? Yeah, so there's a there's some amazing body language trainers out there. So I was trained by Vanessa Van Edwards. So she is out there all over the place. She's great. You can catch her. She's got a few books out there. Mark Bowden is another one. Joe Navarro, who's from the who was an FBI profiler, he's fantastic. I'm also a huge fan of Stuart Diamond, who had taught at Wharton as well. He has a book called Getting More. Um, it's a inf- book on influence as well. And then personally, I love Tim Hartford, who has a podcast called Cautionary Tales, which is just great for thinking about how, how ideas and things connect a little differently. Okay, so a couple of recommendations from me. There is a fabulous book called Thank You for Arguing by Jay Henricks, and it's all about rhetoric. Really fascinating. I interviewed him about a year ago. Really interesting. And obviously, the, the Bible on Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. Difficult not to recommend that. Um, and Thinking Bigly by Scott Adams is a really interesting side perspective view on how influence occurs in the political spectrum. So he's a fairly divisive figure, but he was uh, very accurate in predicting Trump's rise. And uh, he's convinced that Cialdini was brought in in terms of the election campaign. Um, So uh, again, very interesting set of insights there. Wonderful. Shelley, how can people get hold of you? So the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. So Shelly O'Donovan, you can find me, you can follow me, tell me you heard me on Marcus's podcast. I also have a website, authenticinfluencegroup.com. You can find us there as well. Excellent. Shelly O'Donovan, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if there's somebody that you know who could do with a little bit of a nudge in the direction of becoming more self-aware, then please tag them and uh, ensure that they have a listen and maybe take some notes, buy some books, watch some videos. And if you want to get hold of me or you would like to come onto the podcast as a guest or recommend someone, email me marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.